Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. In this episode, we speak with Jesse Rodenbiker, author of the new book, Ecological States, Politics of Science and Nature in Urbanizing China. It's available as a free open access ebook. Download it from our website at cornellpress.cornell.edu. Jesse Rodenbiker is Associate Research Scholar at Princeton University with the Center on Contemporary China at the Princeton Institute for International and Regional Studies, and Assistant Teaching Professor at Rutgers University with the Department of Geography. We spoke to Jesse about China's urban sustainability efforts and how they are increasing both state power and social inequality in China. The seminal ideas that shaped the field of ecology in China over the past 100 years, and the potential lessons that Western nations can learn from China's ecological initiatives. Hello, Jesse. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jonathan, for the invitation. It's uh, it's great to be here. Well, I'm excited to talk to you about your new book, Ecological States, Politics of Science and Nature in Urbanizing China. The book is available as an open access book for free. You can download it on Amazon. You can download it from our website. Anywhere you can get the ebook, the open access ebook is available. I've been reading it on my iPad and my phone. So anyone that's listening to this, you can just instantly get it. There's also an affordable paperback if you prefer it in print, but the open access version is free everywhere around the world. So tell us the backstory to this book. Sure, thanks thanks, John for the question. So I lived and I worked in China for, for many years during the 2000s and 2010s. I wrote on issues related to the environment and society for Chinese domestic magazines. And afterward, I worked on sustainable urban development with landscape architects and urban planners in places like Beijing and Chengdu and other major cities in China. And in the urban planning sector, China's environmental problems were often approached as something that could be solved through kinds of technocratic solutions. So if you could just make buildings more energy efficient, for example, or add enough permeable pavement or create more green space in cities, et cetera, Uh, then you'd finally achieve sustainability. And a lot of what I saw in the 2000s alongside this was massive displacement. So in pursuit of building greener cities, homes were being raised, millions of people were being displaced. And I was really struck by how urban planners were really convinced that this was the right kind of solution. Tearing down housing, resettlement on a really massive scale, and rebuilding in ways that imagined, that urban planners essentially imagined to be optimizing socio-spatial and socio-natural relationships. And these experiences really got me interested in looking deeper into how these logics of urban sustainability came into being, why green urbanization was being pursued in these particular kinds of ways, and what happened to all of these millions of people who were undergoing displacement and resettlement. So this is something of a kind of starting point for researching the book. I wanted to, to make sense of these realities and give voice to the different people who are involved in these processes. Uh, and this includes you know, everyday citizens, as well as scientists and urban planners who are interviewed as part of the research for this book. That's great, that's great. Yeah, I mean, uh, sustainable development sounds good. It's, it's a buzzword that everyone seems to be in support of. And the mainstream scientific and planning journals, they are celebrating China's urban sustainability efforts. But your book, looks into a little bit of the darker side of these programs. You're talking about resettlement and things like that. Tell us how the science of ecology 
and ecological thought have now become active forces in reinforcing state power and increasing social inequality in China. Sure, yeah, so I don't know if I would necessarily call it um, like a darker side, but I would say that there developed a kind of specific epistemological orientation around ecology in China. So ecology is often thought about as the same everywhere, a kind of universalist science aimed at an objective truth. And I'm pushing back against this kind of conception of kind of an apolitical universalist ecology in this book. So one of the things that I'm aiming to do in the book is to provincialize ecology in a sense. Often people consider ecology as a kind of science emanating from the West. It has a particular kind of Leopoldian lineage, at least within the US imaginary. But in the book, I trace a, a different lineage of thinkers that come from China, uh, that come from East Asia, whose reasoned argumentation laid different kinds of foundations for ecological thought. In the specific logics of ecology, they produced shaped relationships of power between the state and society and different forms of social inequality. One of the predominant features of ecological thought in China is what I, what I call or refer to in the book as a, a mechanistic approach to nature. A mechanistic approach, simply put, is the understanding that if the appropriate application of science and technological intervention is applied, then desired outcomes will result in a kind of predictable, machine-like fashion. And with this understanding, the role of scientists, planners, and the state are really front and center. Scientists imagine that if they can just gather enough data and get the models right, and the planners can get the planning right, then they'll be able to produce a kind of optimal relationship between humans uh, and nature. And then the state, of course, is the enforcer of this techno-scientific vision. These logics of socio-natural optimization shape different scientific practices and state society relationships within China. So, so what do I mean by that? Let me just highlight three different kinds of ways in which these logics come to matter and that I discuss a little bit more uh, in more detail in the book. One is uh, techno-scientific control of nature and society. Uh, the second is large-scale interventions in land management. And the third is participation, the level of participation by everyday people in these practices. So one practice stemming from a mechanistic understanding of ecology is an attempt to techno-scientifically control nature and society. In China, for instance, virtually everything is modeled. You've got economic growth models, population models, models of carrying capacity, and other different types of socio-natural relationships are all modeled. Vast stores of data are input into these models and they become part of state plans to manage society, to manage nature, and to manage space. These models also shape efforts to control human interactions with the landscape. So where can people live? Where can agricultural production take place? Where can industry take place, et cetera? These are all things essentially engineered by the state in effort to optimize socio-natural relationships. So second, another way this understanding of ecology's shaped environmental governance in China is through large-scale interventions in nature. So China is really famous for these large-scale environmental interventions. You can think of projects like the Three Gorges Dam, for instance, this huge infrastructure project. And you can take a look uh, at, at the cover of my book, Ecological States. If you've got a link either in the uh, in the uh, in the podcast or on the website, you can take a look at the cover, and the cover shows this human-made waterfall, essentially the largest in Asia, 
made by redirecting the headwaters of the three parallel rivers in Northwest Yunnan. And they redirected the flow of this river to flow right through the heart of the city of Kunming. And the idea here, as scientists and planners explained to me in interviews, is that redirecting the river would accelerate the rate of flow through Lake Dien in the south of the city and help alleviate eutrophication. At the same time, it creates a kind of beautiful landscape with an urban park surrounded by new commercial housing. So this is an instance of large-scale intervention in nature that serves multiple ends. It aims to optimize biophysical relationships in nature, as well as landscape aesthetics. Another really important large-scale intervention that I discuss in the book is what's called ecological redlining. It sounds like really good in Chinese, and then in English, people often think about the history of redlining, and it sounds a little bit suspect. So this is a key state policy uh, that initially aimed to zone 20% of national territory for conservation. So that's really a lot of land, really large-scale intervention. So when I started research for the book, this uh, figure was at 20% of national land. And just last month, the Ministry of Environment and Ecology uh, announced that they increased the, the, the sum total of land to be included in ecological redloading to 30% of national ter territory. So again, this is a huge amount of land that we're talking about. Uh, and the state increased this figure, of course, to align with the new global biodiversity framework. So the scale of intervention in land uh, management continues to go up and keeping track of this figure is an ongoing process. And I would really characterize this as one of, if not the largest area-based conservation project in history. And part of what I detail in the book is how this conservation zoning facilitates what I call ecological territorialization. That is processes by which local state actors territorialize land in the name of socio-natural optimization. So there's really an alignment here of state power and ecology. So the third and the last thing that I wanna stress here is that there's generally a lack of meaningful social participation in conservation within the China context. Everyday people in their history of land use, particularly gruel people, as I write about uh, in chapter two, are often left out of decision-making in favor of these models and projections by scientists for optimizing land use, uh, again, in effort to optimize socio-natural relationships. And this often precipitates various forms of social injustice and social inequality, such as land dispossession and displacement. And I detail a lot of this in the book, uh, including some of the history of how these logics of ecological thought came into being. Thanks for sharing all that. When you mentioned that there isn't a whole lot of public interaction, that there's basically state, uh, you know, top-down decisions, you start off your first chapter telling us the story of this uh, farmer Zhang and how his life has, has dramatically changed and how he was told uh, during the Maoist uh, time, during the Cultural Revolution, to do one thing, and now he's being told a completely different thing that right. is <laughs> counter to what he was told just a few years ago or, you know, 20, 30 years ago. With no agency, he just has to do what the state tells him to do, and that's really that's really interesting. Yeah. So, so Zhang's the, my interactions with Zhang really crystallized some of the transitions that were underway within environmental thought and environmental practice more broadly within China. Zhang's story is really interesting because during the Maoist period, he served as one of the key propaganda performers for the Maoist regime to essentially transform the lake 
by filling it in and making it into agricultural land. So it's really a transition of, of land that wasn't seen as agriculturally productive to become more agriculturally productive. And in the current regime under Xi Jinping, Zhang is now being asked to forego the agricultural land that he helped to create and move into an urban high-rise apartment as, as part of becoming the urban population in China. So the, these kind of transitional dynamics and if and to what degree Zhang can exercise agency within this context and potentially counter state environmental projects is, is part of what I engage in the book. So you had mentioned, uh, you know, ecology being used by the state in this kind of technocratic structure. And I was just curious, what are the historical linkages that shaped ecology in China over the past, say, 100 years? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And I think it's interesting to think about John within that context, because he's moving through a kind of transitional process where ecology in the Maoist era means a particular thing. And ecology within the Xi Jinping era begins to mean really something different. And uh, he's living through that. It becomes part of his life. And in the book, I provide something of a, a genealogy of ecological thought, which really uh, focuses on and highlights China's scientists and their global engagements from the early 20th century up to the present. So essentially that history that Zhang is living through, how, does it, how did it uh, emerge through the thoughts and minds of China's scientists? Ecological thought in China developed over a century of global scientific exchanges across botany, system science, economics, and other fields. And part of what I do in the book is trace the history of how different strains of ecological thought came to be layered into broad conceptual frameworks, uh, which more recently have been articulated by both scientists and politicians as part of building an ecological civilization. This is what Zhang is living through under the current Xi Jinping regime, what does it mean now to build an ecological civilization? And the layered meanings of ecological civilization building that I wanna highlight briefly include ideas about the role of the state and the role of society in sustainable development, ideas about a kind of historical progression from an industrial society to what's thought of as an ecological society and ideas about aesthetics and nature. So the science of ecology really took root in China through early 20th century botanists like Mio Shimanabu, a Japanese botanist who studied ecology in Germany, and Chinese botanist Hu Xiansu, who studied in the US academies, UC Berkeley and Harvard. And these were really kind of key ecological thinkers for a lot of East Asia and China in particular. In their work, we see the aestheticization of plants in their subject matter, both in their use of text and their use of images. And this aestheticization of ecology remains really prevalent today and finds expression in national discourses to build a beautiful China. So what I wanna emphasize here on the onset is that one of the meanings layered into Chinese ecological thought is aesthetic. Again, we can think it back to the cover of the book, the kind of aestheticization of landscape there. And one of the purposes expressed by scientists of building this so-called ecological civilization is literally to aestheticize the national landscape. For example, in 2020, scientists from the Chinese Academy of Sciences developed a quantification index to measure and tabulate beauty. This is called the Beautiful China Index, which literally quantifies beauty across the national landscape. Uh, and those, the, those scientists that invented this beauty index 
have training in system science. They're earth system scientists. And system science thinking was, particularly from the 1980s onward, was a really important field that contributed to defining different roles for the state and for society. And in the book, I highlight China's reform era earth system scientists like Ma Shijun, who was a really important figure in popularizing system science thinking and applying it to the management of society and nature. System scientists like Ma advocated for modeling human populations, particularly rural people like Zhang, and optimizing agricultural and industrial production. So this kind of systems thinking led to nationwide functional land zoning during the 1990s and 2000s. And more recently, it's contributed to new programs like ecological redlining uh, that became part of nationwide uh, planning and that, that, I, that I talked about earlier. So what I'm emphasizing here is that systems thinking contributed to normalizing these processes of ecological protection zoning, and these have come to be thought as key to sustainable development. And they have the effect, as I mentioned before, of extending the reach of the local state. And in addition to system science, ecological variants of political economic thought were really key in framing ecological civilization building as a kind of teleological transformation from an industrial society to an ecological society. Ecological Marxists from the early 1980s up to the present wrote a lot about what they called developing sustainable socialism. And this is something that thinkers really all over the world have been struggling with and writing about for some time. So how can we square socialist thought with ecological thought? How do we surmount these challenges of socialist states balancing industrial production with the industrial effects of production, industrial production? And it's, it's no easy task and there's no silver bullet. And because there's no silver bullet, people have come to really think about and write about it in a lot of different ways. And embedded in the writing of Chinese ecological Marxists are ideas about the deficiency of the rural population and their need to be governed by a strong state. So Chinese ecological Marxists, particularly from the 1980s onward, argued for strong state intervention in transforming rural society to an urban society. And this is the moment that Zhang is living through right now, where the expectation has shifted for him the expectation used to be to transform more land into agricultural land. It's now the expectation in transforming this primarily agrarian society into an urban society. So the expectation from the standpoint of the state is to get him to move into an urban environment and become a fully urban citizen. You say in your book that ecological construction revolves around displacement, resettlement, and conservation-oriented development. And we're talking about Zhang having to make the shift from the rural to the urban and this whole urbanization effort. And that sounds like a difficult transition for sure, but there's, there are some people or many people that have creatively navigated these changes in ways that actually benefited themselves and their stations in life. They call this moving into riches. Tell us about uh, these individuals. Yeah, of course, of course. Thanks, Dan. Thanks so much for bringing this up. Um, yeah, it's really important on the onset here to re-emphasize what you noted here, really the, the scale of these transitions that are underway. So when Xi Jinping uh, became president and chairman in the early 2010s, he outlined a plan to urbanize 100 million people. And this was just part of a longer term plan to eventually urbanize 250 million residents. So the scale of people that are involved in these processes uh, is, is really enormous. According to state plans, uh, the primary mechanism through which this urbanization is supposed to occur is the resettlement of rural citizens into three types of cities. And three types of cities, particularly in China's central 
in Western regions, and these include provincial capitals, prefectural cities, and county-level towns. And that's why I chose for the study of my book to focus on these three types of cities. So I interviewed uh, many people that are undergoing these processes in the cities of Chengdu, Kunming, and Dali in China's Southwest. And these interviews revealed how citizens enrolled in environmental campaigns to conserve nature and urbanize the countryside are navigating these processes involved in, as you put it, in some cases, essentially moving into riches or having upward socioeconomic mobility. And what I wanna highlight here are just three dimensions that I found to be really important in how citizens are navigating these environmental policies. The first is land and housing valuation, the second is rural aesthetics, and the third is infrastructure. So as part of these resettlement processes, rural land and housing need to be evaluated and compensated by the state. Housing and land allotments need to be measured and they need to be assigned a value. And these are really inherently contested and slippery processes. In the book, I write about how citizens strive to maximize compensation and how they use compensation capital in ways that differ from what the state plans. For instance, some villagers corporatize to collectively manage the assets that are derived from land, and some of them form businesses and share the profits collectively. Others have traded in their housing and land for multiple units in high-rise resettlement complexes, and in doing so, they essentially transition from farming to becoming urban landlords. Interviewees would refer to these processes, as you noted, as moving into riches or moving into richness. Ban fuyo was the Chinese term that they would use to describe this process of upward socioeconomic mobility through the process of displacement and resettlement. Others, however, in contrast, didn't obtain such good prices for land and housing, and they would describe their experiences moving into high-rise poverty. Many other people would find themselves somewhere in the middle or somewhere in between. And these people would creatively utilize state assets to undertake various types of livelihood transition. So for example, some villagers would use their compensation capital to rent agricultural land elsewhere and move into different agrarian sectors. And in this way, villagers are essentially resisting the drive to become urban, at least in any straightforward kind of sense, as they're undertaking uh, agrarian practices in some other parts of the town or some other parts nearby. So the second dimension that I want to emphasize is rural aesthetics. So in these transitional processes, resettlement, instead of taking place all at once, actually unfolds piecemeal, piece by piece, part by part. So in some instances, rural people lose access to their rural land, their agricultural land, but not their house. So as the land is transformed into an ecological protection area, many in this situation turn their homes into rural-themed restaurants and guest houses. And in Chinese, these are referred to as nongjiale. And in doing so, they essentially are curating a kind of rural ecological aesthetic to draw in tourists who are coming to visit the ecological protection site. This is a kind of livelihood strategy for those who uh, essentially recently lost access to their farmland. So instead of farming, these citizens have begun performing a kind of rural nature for urban customers who are coming to the ecological preserve. And these performances tend to reinscribe forms of social difference that I talked about earlier. So urban citizens held in a particular hierarchical configuration 
of relatively high comparative in comparison to rural citizens who are, who are deemed or imagined as being of lower or lesser value. They also reinscribe social differences within rural society. So uh, different kind of class stratifications within rural society are represented aesthetically in different ways within these landscapes. So the third dimension that I wanna highlight is infrastructure. So part of what I bring attention to in the book is the role of infrastructure in diffusing social resistance to resettlement. So for example, cases where residents are resisting resettlement, I found instances where infrastructure would be removed or services would be stopped. So if you think about things like electricity or uh, water or sanitation service, imagine a situation wherein those infrastructural services are, are discontinued. There's no running water, there's no electricity, garbage is piling up in the streets because sanitation services have been discontinued. This is kind of intervention in infrastructure to hasten the process of resettlement. I also bring attention to cases where demolition bureaus partially demolish housing and intentionally leave the remains of housing in place as a kind of aesthetic eyesore. So living within this quotidian reality where the, you're essentially surrounded by rubble, you're surrounded by detritus, you don't have the infrastructural services that you would otherwise have in your everyday life. If from the standpoint of residents being asked to resettle, resettlement begins to look really quite different when you live within one of these kind of situations. So again, I bring attention to the role of infrastructure in diffusing social resistance to resettlement and thereby reinforcing authoritarian governance. So this is really important because it points to some of the limits for Chinese society encountering authoritarian state power. So going back to this question, if we think about this through the lens of Zhang, what can Zhang do? What are the limits of his conduct and counterconduct in the face of the authoritarian state? Clearly, we're not in an authoritarian state. It's easy for an authoritarian state uh, to do these things. And out in the West, uh, there will certainly be massive social resistance to this type of thing. That being said, you know, what can we learn from this, from, uh, you know, democracy? Are there any lessons we can learn from these massive initiatives that we potentially could use to help protect our environment here? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So I, I think the book Conserve is something of a cautionary tale about the alignment of ecology and authoritarian power, or even the alignment of ecology and power more broadly. And I think it's important to note that some of the approaches to ecology, uh, which I've been talking about and have become really central to environmental management in China, are actually gaining traction in global contexts. So this is something that I explore in the epilogue of the book and something that I'm continuing to research uh, and write about in my current research. And one of the things that I bring attention to in the book is how China's homegrown environmental discourse of ecological civilization building has been taken up in global environmental forms like the United Nations Convention on Biodiversity. For the first time in history, China served as president of a major UN environmental forum during 2021 and 2022 at the COP15 Biodiversity Conference. And again, this conference was thematically titled Ecological Civilization, Building a Shared Future for All Life on Earth. UN representatives really celebrated this theme, which shows how this idea of ecological civilization resonates to some degree within international circles. And at the conference, China took a leading role in brokering what's now called the Kunming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework, which set targets for biodiversity conservation essentially at a global level. And one of the global goals is to zone 30% of the world for conservation 
by the year 2030. This often goes by the shorthand 30 by 30. You probably read about it in newspapers. It's been uh, in international environmental discourse for, for the last several years. And now it's part of this globally agreed upon biodiversity target. So let's just think back for a moment about some of the stories that I've been relaying, some of the processes that I've been relaying about ecological protection zoning in China, how it's transforming society and nature, how it's reinforcing state power. So, well, if we think about zoning 30% of the earth for conservation, what will happen to people living in those areas in their relationship to land and their relationship to ocean resources? Recent models by scientists project that upwards of 1 billion people would be affected by such large scale conservation zoning. How would a billion or even tens of millions of people's relationship to resources change? What types of new inequalities or injustices might emerge? How might governments harness conservation practices to potentially deepen the reach of the state? The examples that I discuss in my book, particularly surrounding China's large-scale conservation zoning, should give everyone pause to reflect on these kinds of questions. But to be clear, I don't want to come off as villainizing China or give listeners the impression that China is wholly unique in harnessing ecology for governmental ends. Even democratic states such as the US have drawn on ecology to enhance and extend state power. And there's lots of studies uh, that have shown this to be the case. And I highlight a few examples of them in the introduction and in the epilogue to the book. For some comparative context, the history of conservation in the U.S. is really riddled with social injustices, particularly dispossession of indigenous people from land through processes that are often described by environmental scientists uh, and social scientists as fortress conservation. So this entailed the exclusion of indigenous people and their longstanding relationships to land. And what a lot of new and emerging research is showing is that this kind of approach to conservation not only produces social injustices and forms of dispossession, which have long been established and written about, but it also disrupts local ecosystems, which have really come to be constituted through long-term processes of interaction between humans and nature. And when you take humans out of the equation, it transforms those established ecosystems. So this points really to the importance of emphasizing social equality and social inclusion is key principles of conservation and sustainable development. Sustainable development in particular has long been thought about and written about through a kind of tripartite schema of trying to sustain the environment, sustain economy, equity, et cetera. But unfortunately in practice, equity often falls by the wayside. And we can see that in the case of China, we can see that in the history of US conservation and in many other places uh, around the world. And I think a big lesson for global conservationists or conservationists from any country is that social equity, justice and inclusion should really be at the heart of conservation and sustainability planning rather than as an afterthought. And this is something that the book brings attention to throughout each of the chapters and in closing discusses as really a crucial area for continued research and ongoing interventions. I like that a lot, that bringing the human into the equation rather than excluding them, you, you had said that, what was it, fortress ecology or? Fortress conservation. Or fortress conservation. Yeah, that there's this pristine environment that in, which in reality was actually heavily influenced by indigenous peoples throughout centuries that we don't really take that into account. We're just thinking Absolutely. of Garden of Eden that hasn't been touched, you know? Right. But I think this is a great story. As you said, it's a cautionary tale. It's also... It's exciting to see uh, ecology being brought in at this level 
the same time, you know, there's the shadow side of all the displacement and the resettlement and, and the, the lack of empathy with the humans within their environment. But I think that this is a fascinating, as you said, cautionary tale that we should all learn from, particularly uh, looking at the environment as a global issue. We, we need to see what works and what doesn't work uh, for each country's strategies on, on how to protect the environment. And we have plenty of struggles ahead of us, particularly with global warming and mass extinctions and whatnot. But I would encourage everyone who's listening to this, uh, you can get a free copy of Jesse's new book, Ecological States, Politics of Science and Nature in Urbanizing China. It's available, as I said, open access. You can get it for free. You can download it right now, or you can get an affordable paperback as well. If I can, in just closing, I also want to bring attention to the fact that this book is the first single author manuscript in a new Cornell University Press series called The Environments of East Asia. So if you're listening and you're an author and you are working on a book related to environmental issues in East Asia, broadly conceived, you might want to consider reaching out to the editors of this series. Your book could potentially be one of the ones that come out within this series. That's great. Thanks for mentioning that. That's true. It's true. We're excited. This, this is the first one in the series. It's great. Thanks so much, Jonathan, for the invitation to be here. It's really great to share some of the some of the work with you and, and with the listeners. Hey, our pleasure. Thanks so much for writing the book and coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thank you. That was Jesse Rodenbiker, author of the new book, Ecological States, Politics of Science and Nature in Urbanizing China. As mentioned earlier, you can download Jesse's new book as a free open access ebook at cornellpress.cornell.edu. You can also purchase the affordable paperback at our website and use the promo code 09POD to save 30% off. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSAnnounce and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. <laughs>